Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to another edition of Politics Done Right on KPFT. My name is Egberto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being out here with us. We're going to have a great show for you today. Look, folks, we are still in fun drive, but you know, like I've been doing week after week, I've given you complete program. So what I ask you is in between our guests, please remember to go dial 713-526-5738. Again, that number is 713-526-5738. You can make a difference at KPFT, your community radio station, a community radio station that must stay on air. Today we have some very, very special guests, Yvette Avery, Nan Hildreth, and Mark Robert Rank. Each of them has a different subject that we're going to be talking about today. So call 713-526-5738 or go to kpft.org and select one of our offers. Anyway, Yvette Avery has been working on the most extensive and effective organizing campaigns with the IAM to get union representation for Delta ramp and cargo workers. She has been fighting, uh, been fighting this for two years, but now there's a change that illustrates that illustrates why workers must seek changes in laws and not corporate platitudes. Nan Hildred is a former peace activist turned environmentalist. She is a supporter of Kiva and has a special offer for KPFT. It's, she's going to leverage whatever you give politics done right on KPFT. Mark Robert Frank is currently the Herbert S. Hadley Professor of Social Welfare in the George Warren Brown School of Social Work at Washington University in St. Louis. He is widely recognized as one of the foremost experts on issues of poverty, inequality, and social justice. You are going to want to listen to these folks. You are going to want to listen. It covers the entire spectrum. But folks, please remember, for us to give you all of this, we need to keep this community station alive, your community station alive. You can make a difference. So please give us a call at 713-526-5738. Again, that number is 713-526-5738. Special offer, my two books. Libro numero uno, my first book, As I See It, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom. You can get that book for $120 uh, donation, and the book is yours. The second book, my latest book, It's Worth It, How to, How to Write, or rather, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors. That book as well is a $120 contribution, but you know what? Get both of them. 
for a $200 uh, contribution. Save you a few pennies in donation, but you know you're helping us out. 713-526-5738 or go to kpft.org. Folks, also remember... Go ahead and give me a follow at Egberto Willies on Twitter. That way, as we're bringing things out, you can get it. Egberto Willies is the Twitter, E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Or follow on Facebook, which is the Facebook page, Politics Done Right. Folks, that is how we are going to keep this thing together. But you know what? It's that time. Let's get busy. Look, I have a very special guest, a woman that has impressed me for all the work that she does, work that's needed in this country. Look, Evet Avery is a working mother providing for her family. She has been a Teamsters union steward at UPS, as well as an activist for workers' rights for several years. She has been working on the most extensive and effective organizing campaign with the IAM to get union representation for Delta, ramp and cargo workers. Delta recent, not recently, but a couple years ago, uh, released her after seven years in a most undeserving manner. She has been fighting this for two years. But now there is a change that illustrates why workers must seek changes in the law and not just corporate platitudes. So let's get started. Welcome to Politics Done Right. Yvette, how are you doing today? I'm great. It's good to be back. Thank you for having me on. Let me tell you, first of all, I, it, the thank you should go the other way. Thank you for what you are doing because you are making a difference for people who need someone out there making a difference for them. So for that, we are indebted to you. I have a couple of questions for you. Okay. Um, first of all, for the audience who uh, needs a refresher, tell us a little bit about what happened to you with what company, et cetera. Well, back in 20. 20- 18, uh, Delta Airlines came to me and gave me an ultimatum basically to choose between my two jobs, one at UPS and with them at Delta, saying that all of a sudden after seven years, it was a conflict of interest. But of course, uh, me trying to provide for my family, I was not trying to give up either job. I needed to work both jobs to make, you know, one job and one should be enough. But they gave me the ultimatum ultimately. I told him I want to keep both jobs, and I was terminated on the 5th of February in 2019. Now, they term- neither job influenced the other. Is that correct? No. And there were several, and to this day, several people that work both jobs, but they and weren't both, both the same companies, correct? Same companies, yes. So when you got released, what did you do? I began to fight. I was already fighting for unionization for uh, the cargo and ramp workers, as you mentioned previously, but I continued that fight. But at that point, I then started my campaign, uh, hashtag stand with the vet to fight for my job back to restore my my job. But uh, the the likelihood was that the reason they they fired you was because you were actually activating other workers. Is that right? That's correct. I used to wear my union pin at the gates every day, uh, handed out flyers. I was involved in different uh, events that we had trying to organize. So very visible and very outspoken regarding unionization. And that was with what company again? Delta Airlines. Now, tell me a little bit about uh, the environment there with respect to workers, because I, I want to I want to build what I'm going to say first off. Well, we have what they have, the pilots, which are unionized. 
then the rest of the workforce, the flight attendants are not, gate agents as I were, as I was, was not, uh, cargo and ramp, no one else but the pilots. And they did a great job of, you know, separating employees, making people think, you know, pilots were the best, then comes the flight attendants and gate agents and kind of, you know, put down or make people feel less than if they were not as they consider above wing versus below wing, which I thought was a, you know, a, a, a horrible thing to do, but the company did it very well. Also, you said, wait, let me, let me stop you there. You said they kind of name it above wing and beyond, be, below wing in sort of a, a, and that had more connotations than just a below the wing. It actually means lesser. Correct. Correct. I had people, unfortunately, in the company that felt like, you know, people below wing were less than, but their work was pertinent to what we had to do. Everybody played their part and everybody is important in, you know, getting the job done. So for me, you know, coming from below wings to above wing, I felt like, hey, we are sisters regardless of the position that we're in. Now, I, I, I want to stop there and I, I want to give our audience a narrative here. This is why we have this type of programming. What Yvette just said is extraordinarily important. Listen to what she said, above wing, below wing. Could that pilot fly the plane without those guys who put the luggage into the hole? Could they have a business without those who are fueling the plane? No. Could they have a business? Could they make money? This is what happens. I had Dr. Richard uh, Wolf on, and we discussed corporations, and we discussed those issues about trying to uh, put people in different spots. Yes, that pilot had to work a little bit harder than the guy that is uh, packing the luggage, but they are all codependent for there to be a successful corporation. So they are just as important as the pilot, even if the pilot gets a better wage, because again, he invested more in his piloting, understood, but they all make the business. Continue, please, Yvette. I just wanted to make that narrative for a lot of people who tend not to be understand that everybody matters. Right. So for, you know, the ones who were not unionized, but we were all trying to fight to get there. The mm -hmm. flight attendants had their separate campaign of trying to organize as well. But of course, like I said, being out there trying to get it done was a reason to get me out of the way. Uh, and I believe that was the basis of my termination with Delta. Now, uh, since then, you've done a lot because I've watched you. Uh, since then, you've been all over the place with workers. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you did? And I want you to tell it in a way that empower others that this is what has to get done if we are going to really have workers right. It'll make the $15 an hour thing more, uh, more, more important to the politicians than they think it is. Well, yeah, since the termination, of course, I did travel to different places to speak to several different other you know delta employees as well as people in the community speaking on what was going on inside the corporation and that my situation was not uh singular you know we've had other people other activists fired uh even subsequent to my termination other activists were you know chosen to be fired all throughout the country so just making everyone aware of something that i did uh helping you know through the iam even though i was a teamster i'm union regardless i believe unions should be there for workers workers need those rights they need to be able to speak out on the job and especially coming from at will you know, state source 
I know how important it is to have that union contract when you're on a job. So uh, people need to know, uh, sorry to interrupt, yeah. people need to know what at will is because most people don't understand that. They think that is a good thing. No. So at will is basically right to hire, right to fire. So the company has a right to tell you, hey, we don't need you anymore. They don't have to give you a reason as long as it's supposed to be not illegal, which, you know, is very loose as far as what illegal is. But as long as it's not an illegal reason, they have the right to fire you just like the whenever they get ready from the employer so that's the um also it's a, a right to work but it's not right to work means that if it's a unionized company that employees that are hired that do not have to join the union they can work and receive all the benefits of the union but don't have to pay union dues which is something you know that's not really fair because people are fighting on their behalf but they don't have to you know pay into that fight so for me like i said going around the country making people aware of the tactics that the company uses and what they can get away with because of the laws that are in place well you did a great job about that i i was following your path all the times as you as you went place to place and as you made those uh, talks and empowered um empowered people now one of the reasons i wanted to talk to you again is that i think after two years the law firm had something very special to tell you. Yes. After two years, they you know called me up and let me know that they were going to close my case. Um, the main law firm that I was dealing with used other litigators, you know, in order to take on some of their cases because there's so many different cases. So they use other attorneys. And so the other attorneys called me first and was like, Oh, it's against Delta. Oh, well, we we're not gonna you know mess with that because we we're not successful with them. And I thought you know my case is strong, and of course we all you know everybody thinks the case is strong with all the evidence I had. But the laws basically worked against me. So the main law firm that I was dealing with, the guy called me himself and broke it down maybe over an hour and had a great conversation with the differences between the laws. I know some people may be familiar with the National Labor Relations Board Act mm -hmm. uh, versus the Railway Labor Act. So Delta would fall up under the Railway Labor Act, which basically limits, you know, your ability to do go against the company or to go after the company. Uh, if we were under a different act, then I would have a little more rights as an employee to be able to sue and go after them for wages that I've lost and things of that nature. So because of the law that I was covered under it limited what I could do. And for them to go and spend the money to fight it, even though, you know, it's a possible slim possibility, maybe it would have come out right, but the type of wages I was looking for, uh, or the type of money that would be recovered would be worth the cost of trying to get it done. And Delta, of course, would fight it to the end and keep on trying to make people spend more money um, because they have an unlimited, you know, fund source even though now during the pandemic, it's it's changed a bit. Um, so, but still they have a lot of power and uh, resource. So that's basically what it, it boiled down to be. The laws basically don't work for workers in this state. Well, um, if it, this makes your job a lot more important because uh, now it's not about your case, it's about the case that covers workers, periods, and period. And, and what's interesting is that you, you just made a distinction between the NLR, what is it, NLRB, National Labor Resource Board, and the 
railway, which you can see what they did there, right? They, they separate mm -hmm. them so that they could, these very powerful companies don't really fall under the same law. So it is incumbent on you and other activists to, uh, to know the difference and make sure that, that laws get changed both nationally and in each state to protect the, the American workers. Is that right? That is very correct. So we, we're now in, hopefully, yes, we have different leadership, but we're going to have to hold the new leadership we have accountable to push uh, for a federal, you know, to get rid of rights of work federally. Um, that would be great to help out workers all across the country immediately. And, you know, something like that would make drastic changes. People would, they have no idea the changes that could come because of the power of the worker, because we really are the ones that are the backbones of the company without us it would not work you know they would not work so people need to realize their value as workers and fight for that right and know how important it is to have something in writing that backs you you know when you're done wrong or you know injustice is there no yeah we we want workers to work all workers we want corporations to do their jobs they're they're and yeah. they're considered a human being themselves in in, right. in, in front of the law um, but what what is still touching me and is still irking me uh, again is that thing that you just mentioned above wing and below wing. And let me tell you why that touches me. One of the things that I preach all of the times on these programs is how our corporate structure, uh, our oligarchy, our plutocracy, what they do is they create separation among workers, among people. And the reason that they do that is if, if you are fighting with, if, if the, and I'm going to use the terminology as painful as it is, if they have the below wing uh, workers fighting with the above wing workers and the above wings workers think they're a cut above the below wing workers, they create a dissension between those two groups so that though they can fly above the fold, the corporation fly above the folds as the rest fight for crumbs. Uh, how can you, as an activist, get with the union, other unions that have been deemed above? How do you work to let them realize without you, they ain't got nothing? Yeah, that's just very um, putting it on a human and personal level. We just have to reach out to people where they are because you are a pilot you did come from somewhere and a lot of uh, people within the airline industry they have family members that maybe work below wing so they can be like okay yeah my son works down there or my daughter works here so yeah I, I would love for them to have you know similar rights that we have as pilots so that's just simple conversations you know coming to them like hey you know you gotta support the unionization process that's going on with your, you know, your fellow employees, with your, you know, flight attendants and with your below wing and cargo employees, just having those type of conversations and those things that I did do while I was at the gates, you know, letting folks know, they'll see the pen like, hey, yeah, I'm glad you're doing that, you know, so just, you know, being visible, talking to them, having quick conversations can make a big difference when it comes to uh, unionization. Of the Yvette, of the that sentiment is how we close out because that is so important. You have to show the humanity in all of us and that we are all 
working for the same goal. I, I love that. And, you know, I, I talk about that a whole lot. We have to stop allowing others to separate us. We have to stop allowing others to create this false dissension that really isn't there between our humanities, if you will. So, um, again, uh, I ask this question to everybody. So be prepared. What would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't ask you? <laughs> um, just uh, a point of how the loophole worked when it came to Delta. Okay. It's a loophole that they have in their policy that they can make determinations on your employment on a case-by-case -case basis. So you signing all your early you know, employee paperwork, you basically agree to that whether you sign directly under that specific statement or not. You agree to it, therefore, at will and out the door whenever they get ready for you to be some. And I would imagine that uh, you don't sign that, you don't get the job. Of course not. You, and you, you're just not getting a job. You're just getting all the paper. You're just signing away. You're happy you're getting employment. So people don't necessarily read every single thing or understand it at the time. So, Yvette? Avery, it's been my pleasure as always to speak with you. Thank you so kindly for what you do. Please keep doing the great work that you do. We need a lot more women out there like you. So thank you. Hope you enjoyed that, folks. Don't forget, give us a call at 713-526-5738. Again, that number is 713-526-5738. We have two great offers for you, my two books, as I see it, Class Warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom for a contribution of $120 to KPFT. Or you can get my new book, It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors for a contribution of $120. You can get them both for a contribution of $200. Get them both for a contribution of $200. Folks, thank you so kindly. Call 713 526 5738. Again, that number is 713-526-5738 or go to kpft.org and support your station. We have a wonderful person, somebody who wants to make a difference. Wait, did I say somebody who wants to make a difference? No. What I mean is somebody who is making a difference. Today we have the honor of having Nan Hildreth with us. Who is Nan? She's a former peace activist turned environmentalist, and she has a real good cause that she's working with. I know you've heard of. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's go ahead and let her talk a little bit about it. Welcome to Politics Done Right, Nan. How are you doing today? I'm all right. Now, uh, yeah. I, I heard that you have a project that you are working on right now. Uh, tell us a little bit about it and what was the genesis of that project? Why did you feel that passion to get in there with this particular project? Um, well, I've discovered that I can make more global warming impact in developing countries or low-income countries than I can here in Houston. And uh, once in a there's a new thing in, in justice circles. It's called micro-lending. Mm -hmm. uh, this Pakistani, Pakistani guy invented it, and they gave him a Nobel Prize for it. And Basically, he says, everybody's an entrepreneur. You know, don't, he said, forget about unemployment. You know, people want to be entrepreneurs. And 
he said, lend them a little bit of money. They'll pay you back and then they'll get ahead in the world. And so Kiva heard him speak and started a platform to put people with some extra money together with um, entrepreneurs in low-income countries. And now they've got 8,000, 10,000 loans funding right now and uh, a million lenders. And I like it because I don't have to give away my money. I don't like to give away money, but I don't <laughs> mind. I don't mind lending it. And then uh, sometimes we get loans that are really, really green. And always we've got some loans that are kind of green that are good for our climate. Right now we're funding solar startup uh, working capital for uh, solar for Kenya, little tiny solar solar systems. Are you going to show them the the picture? I, I'll show it eventually. Let's go ahead and do what we're doing, and then I'll show them what we're talking about. Uh, and the challenge, okay, about a little more than half a billion people, like 500,000 people, don't have any lights. And they're using these nasty little kerosene lamps. They're expensive. They're dangerous. They're fire hazards. And they put out this tiny light that's about as big as a, as much light as a candle. And solar lights, you don't have to buy fuel for them. And so they'll pay for themselves, but these people don't have the upfront money. It costs about $100, $150 for a tiny, tiny solar system. It was big enough to run one light, maybe a radio, and power your phone. Because they may be off-grid, but they've all got, they've got phones. They want to be connected, I guess. So they've snatched up these phones. They say there's more phones in Uganda than there are light bulbs. And I maybe it's true, but, and I don't understand it. But phones save walking and they can pay people through their phone. So how does the program work, Nan? Um, you put, you make a loan to somebody and this particular um, Pawami solar for Kenya loan has a four-year payback. So they're going to keep the money for four years, but usually it's like a, a year or 14 months. And then they pay you back a little and bit. And this is managed time. through uh, that group called Kiva, the website right. called Kiva. And the fun part about it is that um, say someone is asking for, right now we're, we're do, doing improved cook stoves and they cost $100. So I'll put down $25 and someone... Another three people put down the other $25. So it's, we're a crowd. We're funding as a crowd. It's called crowdsourcing. Crowd, yes. Crowdfunding. And, and I, I like that anyway. So when they pay back, you know, maybe they pay back $10 on their loan. And so I get to $2 and 50 cents and the other three people, they each get $2 and 50 cents and I don't get any interest, and they don't pay Kiva any interest. 
What else do you want to know about how? How it does works? Kiva make its money? They got their hand out for donations. Okay, that so so they take donations so that they can administer these microloans. Right, and we and and like all the other you know nonprofit people, we don't pay them much, and they work their ass off and. They love it because they're doing work they believe in. Now, what about um, uh, like this particular one that you're supporting by Pawami, uh, which uh, is looking for $200,000. So far, it's gotten to 16%. It has 826 lenders. Do they validate these people who are, are, are putting this together to make sure that it's not fraud? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the staff's job. Kiva staff's job is to figure out if these people are cheats or deadbeats. And we've went to Pawami before. I looked it up. It's right there on the website. This is Pawami's prior loan. It was four years ago in 2017, and we lent them 50 grand, which is sort of the, you know how you'll lend anybody $20 just to see if they'll pay you back? Right. So that was their, well, let's get to know you money. Uh, they paid it back. Took them four years to do it. But they paid it back. But they paid it back, and so they're up for four times as much. You know, they're up for two hundred thousand this time. So you think this is a good platform for anybody who wants to uh, do good in society, who wants to go ahead and help other people better themselves? And in your case, I think this is a double-edged sword, or this is this serves two purposes for you. You get to uh, go through your uh, your environmental uh, your environmental wants, and you also get to help people at the same time. Yes. Well, the Pope says the Pope won't separate them. He he talks about he makes some sense, by the way, that old Pope. He says uh, we got to work on poverty and the environment at the same time. And then in, he, I actually was listening to his latest book and he was talking about the crises. So he's lumping COVID and poverty and climate all, all in one thing calling them the crises and i like that that is good well look let me tell you um i think it, what you're doing nan is is very it's a, it's an interesting project it's something that i've heard of before but i was never really you know i never actually looked into it and after uh, you approached me i thought wow this is actually a good thing so thank you very much for uh you put in your money where your mouth is, where your activism is, a lot of people are uh, would be would learn from that experience. Would probably jump on the bandwagon uh, as well. So thank you so kindly for being here. Now here at, uh, for KPFT, I think you have a special offer. Oh yes. Why don't you tell uh, me a little bit about that? If KPF, if you make a donation to KPFT, I will put uh, the same amount on to Pawami. Are you going to so, show them Pawami's pictures? Yes, I'll show that. Okay. So folks, um, uh, listen to what Nan Hildred is offering. Anybody, anybody who is willing to provide $25 or more to Politics Done Right on KPFT, you will immediately get uh, leverage that donation, not only to KPFT, but to Pawami, which is supplying solar light to folks in Kenya, which helps with the environment because it stops them from burning kerosene. Did I get that right? You did. Kerosene 
not only puts out carbon dioxide emissions, but it puts out this nasty black smoke that is really, really, really bad for our climate. It's called but, black, black Well, carbon. folks, for those of you who are watching this on video, we're, we're going to be showing you some of, the, uh, some of this information on the screen. Take a look at it and consider yourself becoming a part of KPFT as well as a part of Puwami. But again, we have a wonderful sponsor here, Nan Hildreth, who will be matching your donations to KPFT with a donation to KPFT and Nan. So thank you so kindly for having been with us. Uh, Nan, why don't you give me a quick closing statement? What did I not ask you that you would have liked me to ask you? Oh, uh, offsets. Each $25 is going to offset five tons of emissions. Um, and China has promised to be carbon neutral by 2060, and France is going to be carbon neutral by 2050, and lots of people are making promises, but you can do it today, because if you're an average American, your carbon footprint is maybe 15, 16 tons, and so $75 makes you carbon neutral, and then you can go on and start being a blessing to our climate instead of, you know, another polluter. There you go, folks. That was Nan Hildred, former peace activist turned environmentalist, supporter of KPFT, supporter of Politics Done Right. Thank you so kindly for having been a part of the family, Nan. Oh, if you join Kiva, be sure to join Climate Pilots. It's a team. They allow Kiva lenders to self-organize onto teams. And, and I'm a co-captain of that team, and we talk about Oh, this loan is really good for our climate, and that loan is really good for our climate. And here's the latest climate news. Thank you so Join kindly, Nan. You're a blessing. Folks, let's help Nan help us. So please go ahead and uh, anything, $25 and over, Nan is going to match KPFT and at Kiva. So give us a call at 713-526-5738. Again, that number is 713-526-5738. Don't forget about our offers uh, my two books, uh, It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors. This is the latest one that I wrote. The other one, as I see it, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom. Look, in this book, you learn about, you know, we have an economic system that is designed to take from most, okay? And this book gives you not only what is really happening, but also how do you get away from being under it. And likewise, it's worth it is about how do we talk to those people that think differently from us? How do we use the conversation to move forward? Because as a country, we cannot move forward with 50 plus one, especially not in a country governed by the electoral college. So we are going to have to bring people into the fold. And that's what we do. We have to know the system and we have to know how to talk to those who have been fooled by the system to bring us into solving the problems within the system. Anyhow, let's continue. 
have a very special guest today. Dr. Mark Robert Rank is currently the Herbert S. Hadley Professor of Social Welfare in the George Warren Brown School of Social Work at Washington University in St. Louis. He is, so, uh, he is widely recognized as one of the foremost experts on issues of poverty, inequality, and social justice, things that we cover here all of the times. He has been the recipient of many awards, and his research has been reported in a wide range of media outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and National Public Radio. He is the co-author of the book, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About poverty. Dr. Rank, welcome aboard. Thanks. Great to be on with you. Hey, look, we, we have a lot to cover. This is, a, this is something dear to my heart because I think it is something that need not be. I think it is a structural issue in our economy, a structural issue in our country. And I'd like to talk about this in detail. So first of all, what is poverty? Ah, great question to start with. Um, so generally the way that we thought about poverty in the country is um, that it's falling below a certain income level. So if you're uh, last year, if you were a household of four and you fell below around $25,000, you would be considered officially in poverty. Um, and that's generally the way that we have thought about it as falling below a certain level of income. And the result of that is that you really don't have the money to buy the, um, the needed um, resources um, to have a decent life. That is interesting because it's amazing that the number you said was about $25,000 for a family of four. I don't know where you live. Well, we're in, in cities, so I guess we live a different existence than others around the country. Um, now, what what is the reason that you would, th why is there poverty in a country that is so rich? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, and that's the, um, that's the paradox of this whole thing is that why do we have the amount of poverty we have in this rich, affluent country? Um, and basically the argument uh, that we make is one of the reasons is we have completely misunderstood this entire issue. Um, the way that we have viewed poverty in the United States is generally as an individual failing. That is, people aren't working hard enough, um, they haven't gotten enough skills, uh, they've made bad decisions in their lives and so on and so forth. That these are the reasons for poverty is the way that we often think about it. And the argument that we make in the book is that actually poverty is a structural problem. And that is, there simply uh, aren't enough jobs that pay a livable wage for folks to survive on. We don't have policies that protect folks from falling into poverty. And so an, e an easy way to think about this as a structural problem is to compare um, the United States with other countries. And we are at the very high end in terms of both poverty and inequality. And the reason for that doesn't have to do with people not working hard. It has to do with the kinds of policies and programs that we have in place um, that do or do not protect folks from falling into poverty. Now, let, let me ask you a question, uh, this one. This may be a bit, um, I, I hope I, I, I ask it the way you can answer it. Um, okay. <laughs> an economic system is human-made. 
And an economic system assigns values to the work people do. How would, uh, how would a dishwasher, why is a dishwasher in poverty, somebody that's doing work that's needed, and a stockbroker never is someone that just pushes paper and do much less work? Well, I think that that's fundamentally wrong. And I think if you work, no matter what, what job you work at, in this country, you shouldn't be in poverty. And I think that, um, you know, President Biden has said, has said a, a similar kind of thing, that if you work full time, there's no reason why you should fall into poverty. And so, um, and so what we need to think about is, again, this is a, this is a structural problem. The person that, you know, that's working at that low wage job um, is uh, working awfully hard, but they're just not able to, to get out of poverty because of the nature of work. You know, a, a way that I like to, to picture this, um, to think about this whole issue that you're bringing up, is with the analogy of musical chairs. Mm -hmm. And if we have, uh, let's say we have a game here where we have um, 10 players and, and eight chairs available. And the circle around, music stops, two people lose out. Well, why did they lose out? They lost out because they weren't as fast, um, they were in a bad position when the music stopped, and so on. And we can point to those reasons for why those two individuals lost out. But if we step back and we say, but wait a minute, the structure of the game is set up so that two people are going to lose regardless of what their characteristics are. And what we do is we're focusing on the losers of the game rather than why the game produces losers in the first place. And that's what we need to do. We need to think about, okay, how do we provide more chairs in this game? And the way we do that is creating better jobs, jobs that have benefits, having policies that protect people from falling into poverty. What we need to do is change the structure of the game rather than always focusing on who loses out at the game. Professor, that is magic. That is magic. It, you, you, I mean, you handled a, you, you, you pretty much said that they are asking the wrong question. Yeah. And they're asking the wrong question purposefully. And I'm going to, I'm, I am going yeah. to go ahead and say, yeah. tell you what I mean, because it is, in, it is in the context of something that came with the literature of your book, where you say, contrary to popular belief, the majority of Americans in poverty are white and very few of the poor live in inner cities. If those facts became more widely understood, how do you think the politics and policies around poverty would change? Before you answer that, that is fundamental because what we do is we create unnatural divisions so that we prevent ourselves from looking at the real problems. Please go from there. Oh, that is, that is so on target that the way that we frame this issue, the way we, we understand this issue is that poverty is an issue of them, not an issue of us. And so we think of poverty through the lens of race, and we think of poverty through this lens of individual failing. We think of poverty as, oh, it's something that's going to happen to somebody else and not to me. Well, that's one of the really big myths. It turns out, if you look across people's lifetimes, 
the vast majority of Americans at some point in their life will experience a year either in poverty or very near poverty. And the reason is for some of the things that we were talking about, that across a, a span of a, of a lifetime, things happen to people that they didn't anticipate. Uh, they lose a job, they get sick, a family splits up. And when those things happen, we don't have a lot in place to protect folks. The other thing that I would say with, with what you're raising, which I think is so important, is um, race, that, that race really overlies the issue of poverty. And we often look at poverty through the lens of race. And um, what you see is that countries that are more generous in terms of their social safety net tend to be more racially homogeneous. Mm -hmm. So you look at the Nordic countries and some of these other countries, countries that are much less generous tend to be racially and ethnically heterogeneous. And the idea there is that um, I'm likely to be more generous to other folks who look like me. And this is what we have done in this country is we've portrayed poverty as an issue of them rather than an issue of us. And we really need to change the focus and say, you know what? Poverty really affects us all. I'll give you one other example of, of why uh, we should think about it that way. I did a study a couple of years ago that looked at what's the cost of childhood poverty, the economic cost um, on an annual basis. What is that costing us? And what we did is we figured out that childhood poverty increases healthcare costs it increases um, economic, pro it reduces economic productivity when children in poverty become adults, and it increases criminal justice costs. And so we factored all those things in. And what we came up with was in 2015, childhood poverty cost the United States slightly more than $1 trillion. Put, put that in perspective that was 28% of the entire federal budget. So it's not as if we're not paying for this. What we're doing is we're paying for it on the back end of the problem rather than the front end of the problem, which is always more expensive. So again, we need to think about poverty as affecting all of us just not, and, and not just particular groups. I have to go back uh, to sort of what I alluded to in the beginning of the program, and that is, an economic system being human made. And in saying that, the reality is that we are, we are looking at us. And, and tell me if, 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 if you you, you've been able to corroborate this. Is this true? Does this fall in line? And that is in an in a inherently unfair economic system, the only way you can maintain peace and the only way you can maintain that system is if you create chaos below where you're not fundamentally looking at the unfairness of the system. I go back to the people who make the most. You're a professor. Hmm. I've written uh, many articles and I've placed in a couple of my books that I think the most important profession on this planet is teaching. Why? Because you're the one that's moving knowledge forward. You're moving the, you're, you're moving the intellectual uh, progress of that country forward. Yet, uh, you may be one of the highest paid professors, I don't know, but uh, teachers and professors and, and the like aren't rewarded as well as they should. We also go into uh, jobs where uh, people do a whole lot of, you know, the, the person who takes care of the kids of the billionaire, uh, they are still 
underperforming what should be done. So, I mean, we inherently have an economic system that does not reward those who produce. I also say sometimes put a farmer and a stockbroker on an island and put this, put, split that island in two. And whoever, the, the person that's worth the most is the person who can survive. That's not what is rewarded in our economic system. So my question to you then, isn't it a fundamental issue with our economic system that creates though the chaos below, racism and all the isms, so that we don't look at what the problems really are? Problems really are. Yeah, that's a great observation. Um, you know, there's a there's a, um, a sort of an argument out there that says, you know, um, poverty exists because it actually serves a function, mm-hmm. and it's kind of along the lines of what you're saying. It, uh, you know, the argument would be that, you know, because we have poverty, we have folks that are. Are, uh, don't have many options. They have mm-hmm. to take these low-wage jobs. Um, that benefits us all. And what we do in this book is at the end of the book, we say, you know, we go through and we walk through all these different myths that we're talking about here. And the, the evidence is overwhelming that these myths do not hold water, that they are, they are really not the reality. So then the question is, well, if that's the case, why do these myths continue? Why do we continue to sort of have this perspective of, of poverty as you know individual failing and so on. And we ask this question, perhaps those myths have benefited certain groups, just kind of like what you're saying here. An example of that would be politicians have used the, uh, the, um, the idea of the welfare freeloader over and over again to score political points. Ronald Reagan did that, Bill Clinton did that, Donald Trump has done that. Um, you know, it serves somebody pur- purpose. It also, to get to kind of what you're bringing up here is, if we say, well, it's really your fault, then that really serves the purpose of the status quo, which is more and more inequality. So those at the top can say, hey, it's not my responsibility. Um, that's too bad, you know, but, but really nothing needs to change. Well, that's a very convenient kind of way of thinking about it. And what we argue is that that is completely wrong, that because this is a structural problem, because this is a problem with, with the economic structure, that we all have a responsibility here in order to address this issue. Interestingly, I had uh, Dr. Richard Wolf on with me, and we went into sort of a discussion as far as worth is concerned, where we talked about um, whether, you know, Jeff Bezos owns $160 billion plus, and whether that is really his money, whether that is his wealth, or is that really the parasite? Uh, is he a parasite? In other words, is he uh, making money off of everybody else? Which I think plays right into the poverty domain, and that uh, that monies that he has, uh, that monies that he have, is monies that he hadn't paid to his employees to take them out of your defined poverty. True. Yeah, I mean, um, you know. <laughs> You have to you have to stop and, and ask this question of, um, you know, wh- you take the example of, of of a CEO, you know, which is what you're kind of getting at here with Jeff Bezos. Um, in 1980, the average CEO earned about 
40 times more than the average worker earned. Today, it's over 300 times. Mm -hmm. Now, is the CEO that much better than they were in 1980? No, I don't think so. And it's that all of these economic benefits have flowed to the top. And yes, I think there is something morally wrong with that. Um, you know, it's like, how much do you really need? And, um, and I think there is beginning to be a discussion about this, about this rising inequality. In fact, um, a, a book project that I'm working on now is really getting at and, and addressing this issue of rising inequality and the consequences that that has for America as a country. And the consequences are pretty dire. Um, you know, if we continue down this road of more and more inequality, we are going to see some really significant ramifications of that that are not that are not good that are quite negative. So um, yeah, and and you know you raise another interesting point, which is um, the value of work. I mean, to me, for example, somebody who's taking care of children at at, a, at an early age is really important. That's mm -hmm. really important work. Um, and yet we don't value it. They're some of the lowest paid workers in, in the country. So, you know, we, we really need to start thinking about our priorities here and getting those straight. You know, my, I, I used to say when my daughter was a kid, uh, my daughter spent more time at school. How can I complain when we're asked for a tax increase to make sure those who care for my most valuable asset yeah. is uh, spending time with them? But, you know, um, I think, I, there, there's one thing that I want to get out there, and I, I think we ought to start thinking so individual as we do. In other words, um, my success has been dependent on so many other people that absent what they've done, I would not be doing what I am able to do. Yours apply as well. And my success is completely dependent on the professors, the teachers, the candlestick maker, the bread. All these people played a part. And those who monopolize on on taking and taking uh, what they are in by definition, they are thieves by definition, just legal ones, but thieves. Um, look, we're getting close to the end of the interview. And before I close, I want, I always ask this question. What haven't I asked you that you would like to put out there? And uh, again, we'll, we'll go ahead and talk a little bit about or present your book to the folks at the end as well. Yeah, well, we've talked about it. You've, you've raised some excellent points um, and gotten to the heart of the matter. I guess uh, what what I would sort of like to end on is uh, that I'm actually um, somewhat optimistic that, you know, folks like you, um, folks in, say, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, you know, are talking about these issues. And there are some ideas out there that, you know, a few years ago, we might've thought was just like crazy, the idea of a universal basic income. Oh, wow, uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, that that's like, you know, holy cow, that's 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 pretty yes. radical. And, it, and now it's part of the discussion. And, you know, both President Biden and, and Mitt Romney proposed a child allowance, which is a variation on the um, universal basic income. So, um, and, and also, um, the new administration has talked about the importance of raising the minimum wage to a more livable wage, like $15 an hour. So I, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm actually kind of hopeful that we are in a period where we could see some movement on these issues and begin to address these issues of poverty and inequality. 
Well, look, Professor, with, uh, with people writing books like you've written here, uh, with people talking about this issue, I am happy to say that I think uh, if, uh, we're in good hands. That, that we, we avoided fascism, so <laughs> therefore we have a small window to get something done. And again, I say we have a small window to get something substantive done for all of America. I have a phrase I use. When we unite Appalachia, the ghettos, and the barrios, it's, it's a, uh, we would have won this case. And I think uh, some of these statements that I'm seeing about your book does exactly that. It makes us understand that really we are in the same boat Absolutely. and that the dead weight in that boat yeah. isn't the average person. The dead weight are those people on top. There you go. Dr. Mark Robert Rank, co-author of the book, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty People. Let me tell you something. What we're going to do to win this, this battle, this war, is to get ourselves educated. When you have great guys like Dr. Mark Robert Rank putting books out like this, get it. Because this is how we win the war. Dr. Mark Robert Rank, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Then Right. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, keep up your great work. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that. We got to get out of here. But folks, beforehand, remember, we have two offers for you. It's worth it. How to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors. And as I see it, class warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom. Get any one of the two for $120 contribution or get both for $200. Don't forget Nan's offer. Nan is offering $25 matching. If you go ahead and provide $25 or less, call 713-526-5738. Again, that number is 713-526-5738 or go to kpft.org. That is kpft.org and select uh, any one of these offers under Politics Done Right, in the name of Politics Done Right, and we will take care of you. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right, and you know how I end this, baby. I am what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. <laughs>